Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 364, and I had a conversation with Sheena Brooke. Sheena is a powerhouse of resilience. In 2022, Hurricane Ian destroyed her home. As a teen, she endured gay conversion therapy. Sheena comes back stronger from every obstacle thrown in her way. The performing artist songwriter is a full-time tour musician and was Team Adam on NBC's The Voice. She's pint-sized, but I mean, when I say powerhouse, she's a powerhouse. She's whip smart, she's determined, she's funny as all get out, she's sweet as can be. And we had just such an, a really interesting, beautiful conversation. We talk about shame and family and love and kindness and finding strength to be comfortable in one's own skin. And just, she's rad. So I'm really excited for you to hear this episode. Check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, wherever you get your music. And look for my album, All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. Please check out my relationships and sex show with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube under Are We There Yet? Podcast Show. Rate, review, subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to say especially thank you to the reviews that have come in recently. There have been some really lovely messages and I'm just, it makes my day every time I read one. So thank you so much for that. And I just finished the Ted Lasso season finale, which of course I Twittered about because I'm a nerd and I, you know, (laughs) had to talk about my feelings on Twitter about Ted Lasso. Wow, what a show. And in order to just even handle the season finale, just of it ending, because it it meant so much to me uh, over the past three years, it came out at a time when I think we were all feeling quite alone and it was such a ray of hope in such a dark time. And to have it end was just, it was like saying goodbye to an old friend, a new old friend, a, a friend that you meet that is new, but you felt like you've known your whole life. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, I, I went back and I watched the first episode of the first season and what a delight. Anyway, just wanted to get that out there. All right. Thank you for listening. Be well, be kind, be love be supportive of each other. You know, we are all in this together. Uh, it's just the more we put the good stuff into the world, the stronger the good stuff will be, you know? So let's keep fighting for that. All right, here we go. Sheena Brooke, welcome to Hey Human. Hi. Hello. How's it going? Pretty good. How's it going with you? No, chaotic, but great. Same, same. It's, uh, chaos here we have two puppies which is like great and so much joy but also like what are we doing their siblings they're so cute like so cute and they've really given my wife so much joy golden retrievers oh lord so they're super high energy yeah they actually because they have each other well we had one we got one uh-huh we used to have two golden retrievers we lost the last of the two march uh-huh. 1st I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. It was like tough. And we were like, we're not getting another dog. And then um, our friend said, will you help me pick out a golden retriever? Because <laughs> he loves the dog and our, loved our dog and wants one. So, and we end up going home with one too, which is fine. And then the breeder called us and said, no one, no one is, wants this dog. Like he's a big boy, but he said, he said, no, you know, no one really, do you guys want him? And we were like, well, yeah, we're not going to. And it's actually been better because she they wear themselves out. All right, let's get into it. You and I met in the Key West Songwriter Festival festivities. Yes, yeah. in a pool. It was in great. Yeah. <laughs> what a break from life. It was really great. It was a needed break, yeah. And our mutually adored uh, friend, Megan Myrick, yeah. love so much. Your story I followed before I ever met you. I did not even realize you were the same Sheena when 
the hurricane hit Florida and all this chaos was happening and Megs was putting up video saying my friend's house is underwater and holy crap all this stuff that when we met we were in the pool in water ironically (laughs) that I said wait a minute actually I think it occurred to me when we were walking I said wait a minute you're the you're the Sheena you're the you're that Sheena you're that hurricane girl but before we get into all that fun trauma let's start with just the the basics where are you from did you grow up in Florida I actually was born here in Fort Myers um Fort Myers, Florida. And I moved to Atlanta like briefly uh, after I came out and then I, I ended up coming back. Uh, but yeah, I was born and raised in Florida. I'm a definite Florida girl. Was there a reason that you felt you couldn't stay in Florida after you came out or was it just by happenstance that you went to Atlanta? Um, yeah, I think it, there was, it was a much needed like reprieve from my hometown. Coming out like was a pretty tumultuous for me. I grew up pretty religious and my parents were really um, avid churchgoers and really believed in that system. And so when I was about 16, I, uh, I met a girl I liked and all that and people found out and I had to do conversion therapy. It's interesting too, because like I'm at my parents right right now, because it's the quietest place because they've come a long way. I think people believe what they're told to believe a lot of times, which in, in that circumstance, when they told me something's wrong with you, you need counseling. I went, okay. And then my parents did the same thing. I actually just started calling it conversion therapy because that was hard to a hard pill to swallow to understand that that's what I went through for so many years to undo and erase who I was in that. And so I did that. I ended up going to Bible college. Uh, I was ordained. I got married. I did all the things I was told to do. Married to a man. Yeah, to a man. Firstly, let's go back a little bit because okay. that's a lot all at once. <laughs> You're comfortable talking about it. Yeah, I am. I'm curious, at what point were you starting to realize, oh, I'm not what everybody says I'm supposed to be? You know, people rarely ask me that question because there's so much trauma loaded behind coming out that you forget like that that initial experience to know. I think I've always been like drawn to, to girls and women and all of that. I think I grew up a little sheltered and a little young. My wife always says that even though I was born as a 90s baby, I'm a 2000s baby because I grew up a little later, much more naive. And so I would, you know, I think I just met this girl. I think it was eighth grade because it was the ninth grade that I started getting, I started conversion therapy and like all of that because it kind of came out and all that. Cause I was, I was really involved in church too. So you couldn't do anything. I couldn't do anything without, you know. So did somebody find out then, or did you say to your parents, Hey, I like girls. Yeah. They found out because I was just here. Here's how it happened, which is really, really awful when you're trying to figure out who you are. We were young, like at a youth group trip, just like having a great time. And when I say like minimal physicality, like I always make the joke that like, if I was going to get in as much trouble as I got in over the years, I should have like fucked everyone, like everybody, because I got in enough trouble so that I should have been just, you know, very promiscuous. And uh, so, but I wasn't, I was, I was uh, definitely tried to do what I was told all the time. And so we were like hanging all over each other. And they thought that was, I don't, I cannot even recall because it's so intermingled with all this. I can't even recall if we had kissed yet or anything, but we were hanging all over each other at an event, just being lovey-dovey. And so uh, the pastor pulled us into a meeting. So he has a door and I wait outside while he basically interviews her and then she goes outside and then I go inside and they did that about four or five times to one of us like cracked uh crying saying I, I mean I have feelings for her but like I don't know what that means and and then it's like okay well God hates that and you're broken and now you need counseling and and so and then we did that and I and I do remember one of the things I recall the most about those moments is uh um I started counseling and you know I'm a young person I'm like kind of helping with church and doing all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, how do I know if God healed me? And they said, we'll tell you. And I don't know why of all the things that always like strikes out in my mind, because it's like, 
a lot of people live their lives with someone telling them when they're okay. Telling like, I'll tell you when you're okay. I'll tell you when you're healed. I'll tell you when you've made enough money. I'll t- no one can tell you any of that shit, but yourself and, and learning to like love yourself is a huge journey, whether you're gay or straight or bi or asexual or whatever your situation in life is, whether it involves sexuality or doesn't, that is a difficult journey. I think for all of us, the audacity of a pastor coming to you and doing that is insane to me. I love that word because like, you cannot get me started on the word audacity because now as a person, so so after all of that, I went to Bible college, I got ordained, I got married, I was in ministry. And so with all of this knowledge and then all of the uh, kind of rub, because I've always struggled with the viewpoints of this organized church and get, and I got in trouble for all kinds. I got in trouble for bad opinions. I got in trouble for being gay and the word audacity, the audacity to think I know what God's saying just alone. It just blows my mind now at this point. And just how religion has come, which is like a whole separate podcast because like, you know, it's like, I I swear I could talk about it all day because it's like, it's just something that blows my mind about this person I used to be and this strong belief system and 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 the belief in Jesus and and, and being saved and Christianity and then to now to where like, I don't know, maybe I feel that way on a Tuesday. And then maybe I think I'm an atheist because how can God exist with all of this in the world? And then you think about Christianity as a whole and how opposite it is from the story of Christ, mm. which is the biggest thread in in that story is a story of acceptance, of nonviolence, of like, you know, giving, giving away what you have and not holding on to it. And I just feel like Christianity is all mega churches and guns. So yeah. the opposite of that, you know, I, I feel the plot has been lost about yeah. for the underdog and helping those in need and all of that for sure. Are you comfortable talking about what conversion therapy was like? It's so weird because it's also the reason that I have so many, when, when you start thinking about these things, it has so much to do with some principles I have now, which is that how life is like when I, um, I recently started therapy after the loss of my friend. I, I keep dumping things on you. Uh, and I was like adamant that they needed like a doctorate. I would not see a counselor. And there are some wonderful counselors out there. But the reason is because my conversion therapy was with some woman that took a weekend class to become a counselor. And it's like, you are not equipped or educated enough to help someone that is really struggling, me or anyone, you know, a woman who lost her child or whatever, whoever you're counseling, you do not have the equipment to do that. So it's pretty, I don't recall a whole lot of it, to be honest, just a lot of like sitting in a room feeling worthless. That is the predominant memory is just feeling and then just trying to search for things. Well, your parents must love your brother more than you. And I've never felt that. So I think that's baloney, you know, I'm being so nice. I said baloney instead of bullshit. I think it's my mom's house. Like, so yeah, that's kind of all I remember about it, to be honest. And I did it at 16 and then they got like bored with me or busy. And then again, at 21, um, I had counseling again because I actually was really involved in church. I'd been through all of that. I'm like the worship leader. It's a several hundred person church. And I go to the youth pastor and I say, I'm just like struggling because you want me to be this leader, but I just don't feel like this is who I am. I really have feelings for this girl. You guys want me to marry this pastor guy because they're very involved in your life, you know? And so I told her that in confidence and she told the whole staff in a meeting and then they pulled me out and then he fired me after that from the, from my job. Cause I was a worship leader, which in the end is kind of the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> well, of course, but the, the idea too, I mean, the whole point of being able to talk to a pastor or a priest or a rabbi or, or an imam or any of that stuff is that they are keeping in confidence what you are telling them. It's But the, I think the the meat and potatoes of what organized religion is, is it is a business designed to protect itself. And unfortunately, 
I think people that start with the best of intentions, I want to get these people together. I want to share the gospel of Christ, which is to feed the hungry and love the widow. And then we need to pay rent because we got a building because this building is really nice. And then now we got to take, and then now, and it all just kind of, to me, hasn't, it snowballs from there, but that is obviously an opinion based on in my lens. How does one wrap their head around completely shutting out an identity? I mean, that's that's the thing that I find so traumatizing on on your behalf, even. But it's just traumatizing to hear that. How are you supposed to go from who I am, and now I'm going to go be this other person just to satisfy your church? I think that that is the reason. We hold prides. The reason we have events, the reason I speak so loudly about being gay is because if someone would have told me it's okay to be me, I might have had a different life experience. If one person in my life would have said, fuck them, be you, I might have had a different experience because, and I don't regret that or take it back because I'm who I am because of it. But the danger of that is I completely erased my identity. I replaced it with who they wanted me to be. I got married. I was in a awful abusive relationship because of that. So there's no health there. And then I got to a point where it was just, I was so dark that I was really suicidal. And I actually went and talked to my cousin. I had been married for four years. And I talked to my cousin who I was like best friends with at the time. And I said, I, I just feel like so broken and not myself that I need to probably put a bullet in my head or I have to change my life. And she said, well, don't do anything because it just doesn't seem like you should do anything. And that was just like all her advice, which, you know, you can sense that a sense of like, and maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but like in my, I felt like that advice wasn't about me. Because then afterwards, before I even came out, I got divorced. I said, you know, I'm unhappy. This person is toxic and awful and and abusive. And like, I cannot be around them anymore. Um, and just really manipulative type of, you know, we became like pastors of a church and how we looked was, it was just awful. And, you know, very possessive. You belong to me, that kind of thing. I was like, I got to get out of this. And um, I just... After I did get divorced, or I started that. She's like, well, it's not like you left him. You left all of us. I'm like, that. that is the nature of the most, That that is what I always sensed from that point is this selfish stuff. And, you know, unconditional love, I just think it says, it doesn't matter how it affects me. Are you happy? Because you deserve to be happy. And that's it. There aren't really any, and when parents ask me, how do I, you know, my kid came out, or my kid is non-binary. I don't know. And I keep getting it wrong. And it's like, it's okay to get it wrong. All you, all any person wants is someone to say, I don't care. Are you happy? I want you to be happy. If I get it wrong, tell me I got it wrong. I'll do my best to fix it. That's it. Just support to get it right. Lead with love. Lead with love. It's, it is not rocket science. Yeah. And, but so that's kind of. How did the walls come tumbling down then when you got out of that relationship and you said, it's time for me to be me? He was pretty mad and uh upset and it was uh he would like follow me around i i kind of moved out with just a little bit of things and stayed at my parents nobody kind of believed me until that point and i'm at my mom's and she lets him in the house and he comes in the bedroom shuts the door and locks it and she's like won't let her in and then i'm at my friend's house a girl i liked he's like outside all night long just follow me around, all that kind of stuff. I don't know. It was tough. It's actually not a, his, his family started a rumor that the reason we were, that I was divorcing him is because I had a demon. And they said that they were going to come find me in the streets and pass the demon on me. And so I ran out of clothes. I went back to get clothes. This is like one of my most vivid memories. And I asked my parents to come with me and you know, they, they like, didn't really know. I, I don't know. Everything was very hidden. And so I go in there 
And somehow, I still to this day don't know how he found out he was supposed to be at work, that I was there in the house. And I went back to our house to just get a couple of things. And um, and he's like, comes in the door. And I'm like, okay, what, what I have is enough. We got to go. And he stands in front of me so I can't get out of the door. My parents are sitting down. He tells my parents to shut up because I'm his wife and he needs to talk to me. Puts his finger in my face and starts praying in tongues. Yeah, it was pretty cringy. At this point, I'm like, man, uh, but I just stopped. I said, are you going to physically hold me here for my parents? And he said, no. I said, okay, I'm ready to go. And I walked out the door. And, you know, I don't, I don't think I've seen him since that day. And, and he, I don't have, I have no idea if he lives in this town. Some, some of my family, I still like connected to him, connected to the church I grew up in. And so I just decided like any of that connection is not healthy for me and I'm out. And so I don't know. Are your parents still part of the church? Not that church. They actually got away from all that for a little bit. Kind of had like home church with with their family a little bit. And now they're back at a, a place that seems really nice. I think that sense of feeling and that church gives you is important to them. It's interesting from from the perspective from the outside to think, okay, parents are supposed to love their kids unconditionally, but they have outside forces telling them that their kid is a demon or has something wrong with them or is broken. Yeah. And to allow space for them to also have their own arc of being yeah. and to learn how to come to the table, if you will. How was that for you as you were, I'm assuming, hoping, but not holding your breath for that to happen? With my mom and dad? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, I feel like it's just like a constant journey because obviously there's like, some stuff, like I said, I just started calling it conversion therapy. A lot of that is because I don't want to think of my parents as people who send me to conversion therapy, you know, and they bear a lot of responsibility for the trauma that I faced as a young person when it was their job to protect me. However, I think I watched them change. I watched them, you know, my ex-girlfriend, I think my mom said, well, I don't, I wouldn't really, I think innocently kind of said, well, I wouldn't think of you as my daughter-in-law because all she knows is her construct to meeting my wife, her and I've been together nine years now, and immediately being different. Like, this is my daughter-in-law summer, you know, because she knew that she was different. I don't know what it was about that, but that, you know, just the change and saying, okay, like, this is who Sheena is. And she's obviously happy. And I mean, my life's like 19,000 times better on the surface, not alone internally after coming out, you know? And so, and that's with all of the crazy shit that's happened in my life, you know? So um, I think that is, I try to find the balance of living in a place of grace and understanding and love for like who they are deep, deep inside. And then also a place of knowing that doesn't always have to be okay. I can tell the truth of my past and it, and, and, it is what it is, you know, so. I mean, none of us can really understand what it's like to be anybody else, right? Everybody's going through their own personal hell and, yeah. and heaven, you know, all at once, all the yeah. time. Uh, but you live in a place, Florida, where you are being told not only by the people around you, but also by your government that there's something wrong with you. How do you deal with that? It's so interesting too, because I think that has been such a swing. Like as I become more and more of myself, I felt like, and I'll play and like feel, play music for a living and like play and be myself and tell jokes and everybody's so accepting. And then like all of my friends, I, I did a CD release party for a song called Bad Bitches Like Me. Meg and I wrote it together. My The host of my event was a drag queen I know named Alexia. And she is wonderful. And people came to see the show and she was there. And then literally like a, six months later or however long later, drag queens are evil. And and I'm, I'm playing a pride that I'm actually not super available to play. But I was like, I have to play this pride. I, they asked me to play because they don't have the performers anymore because they cannot safely have any of our drag performers, our hometown 
you know, drag performers perform on the main stage. And this group is constantly trying to get the, the city of Naples to revoke the permit for the pride. And I'm like, I have to be a part of this. I have to be a voice. When we talked about moving after the hurricane, one of the reasons we were like, I think we need to stay is because it's like, if everyone moves, they win. There is no voice. There is no one to say, I'm sorry, I exist. I am here. I am a Floridian. And, and I felt like I have to make time so I'm to, to do this part and to be at this thing. Cause it is, it is annoying and it is dumb. And it has also made me very aware of my privilege because I do songwriters festivals all the time, which are wholesome and beautiful. And some lovely white family from Indiana will give me permission because the crowd will ask to sing a song I have called sit on my face. That's the chorus of the song. Sit on my face and tell me you love me. It's hysterical. It's pretty. It's whatever. If I was anyone other than a white straight passing female, I would not have that privilege. And so now I feel even more compelled as I've realized that to go do something. Meanwhile, you know, uh, a queen comes out and sings some empowering song about being yourself by pink and they're shunned because what you're wearing a ball gown. And it just like blows my mind why any of that matters, because I honestly don't think it actually matters to anybody. They're just wanting to complain about something to distract from whatever else they're doing, but that's a whole other conversation, but it's, yeah, I think it's just, it's very hard to reconcile and figure out, but I'm just trying to do my part and, Tell my story, use my voice. I played an event recently with all of these young um, Naples kids. They're high school and below. And it's the GLSEN Glisten group who's recently actually been attacked in the media. Um, there's a chapter here and they asked me to play it. And I I was just blown away because it's this like day event and they have these breakout sessions. And half of the sessions are about understanding the legislation that's being passed and how it affects you. So they're educating themselves and how to combat it with love and without anger and to do their best and be themselves. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm so angry, (laughs) you know? And then I'm going also, I just really doubt that any other conventions for young people are having that conversation. It's more like, I'm going to be an American. You know, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's frustrating. <laughs> but it must have been a very empowering moment to get married to the woman you love. It was. It was amazing. We got married on the beach uh at Noon Park, which no longer is there. It was my brother married us. It was incredible. It was interesting. My family that I had was no longer speaking to, I did invite them. I started I started to stop speaking to them after our engagement because I invited them and they called two two of my cousins called to say, we can't be there. We can't support that. Like it's disgusting, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, Oh dude, like you could have just like not RSVP. It was really hurtful. And my wife, my one cousin, I had no idea that she felt that way when she called me and told me like, I'm a teacher of the word. I can't be there. I don't want to see gay people. We only had like three gay friends at the time and really broke my heart. And I was crying. I worked at Guitar Center at the time. So I was sitting outside on the ledge and I told Summer. And Summer sent a text message to my family, like my mom, my cousin that she knew, people she personally knew, my my other, my second cousin. So the, God, this is complicated, but the one that messaged me, her daughter and I were really close and Summer knew her too. So her, my brother, my mom, and text him and just said, I cannot believe you would even speak to bigoted people like this and let them talk to your daughter that way. I will not be at any of your family events. Do not invite me. I will not survive. I've never known people like this and I have no interest in knowing people like this. And that's the first time in my whole life someone stuck up for me. Full grown adult. And it just was like, my wife is amazing. Like the best thing I've ever done is marry that broad. Um, and that moment was is pivotal in my life because it didn't just go, oh, she loves me, um, which is important. But it was like, oh, my God, I don't have to take this shit from people. 
And I think that's the thing that she's constantly kind of done for me as my spouse, like is constantly remind me, you, you know, you don't have to do that, right? You know, you don't have to agree to that. And so I've, I've just become, I mean, she'll say it often, I'm a very different person from when we first met, but for the better, I'm stronger, I'm a much stronger person. She's a very strong person. And I like to think that rubbed off on me a little. She didn't grow up with the same bigotry around her. No, she, I love her. She came out in an email uh, right out of high school. Uh, hey, I'm gay. If you don't like it, get out of my life. And most people, everyone was like, we know, we love you. <laughs> her mom and dad lived with us for a long time, for a couple of years. They're really wonderful people. Uh, I remember when I met her mom and I told her about some of my cousins, she was like, I didn't know people were like that still. Just with this, you know, beautiful, she's very rosy, uh, beautiful outlook, loving woman. And, uh, I imagine the two sets of parents have in- inspired some growth and change. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I, I think Summer has become a more patient person. I've become a stronger person. I definitely love her mom, like in a, a, a sweet way. We have a great relationship and um, her dad's like 84 and he's really smart and still works like just her parents are great. You know, my parents are wonderful too. They literally give the shirt off their back to a stranger. Like they're very, very generous, very giving. Um, and so it's like, I'll keep, I'll, I'll keep all those kinds of people in my life and forget the rest. So, I mean, it's to the point that you have to be taught to hate. You have to be taught bigotry and prejudice. That yeah. stuff isn't innate in us. No, it's and not. That's the one thing it's that I believe that it can also be cleared from us. Yeah. If you can learn it, you can unlearn it. Yeah. If you want to, but you really have to want to. You do. It's sure. any amount of change in your in your life and especially in something that's like ingrained in you is completely possible. I've seen it happen. I know it's possible, but you have to want to. Let's move forward to the hurricane. Yeah, so Summer and I been married uh 8 years, 9 years and we're just plugging away. We both work really hard. You know, I'm a working musician, songwriter. Now my wife is a very hard worker. She works for UPS. She, at the time she was doing real estate. She has a real estate license, takes on a few clients here and there, um, predominantly on the beach because she's really knowledgeable. She grew up on the island, went to elementary school there on Fort Myers Beach. She also manages my local stuff. So any of my bookings and all that, she has great relationships with venues. It's kind of the reason I am able to play for a living because she's very good at that. And all musicians, we kind of need someone like that in our lives. Um, So we're trudging away, kind of getting on our feet. Her mom gets cancer, which she survived, um, but really goes through it. And it just took a huge hit on their finances. And so they had to ended up having to move in with us. Um, to get back on their feet. We think they have a lot next door. We think we'll sell it all, find a house somewhere else. We don't end up doing that because Summer and I have been working our asses off to live on this beach in this beautiful house that she had before we got together, but we've remodeled it. We've just put all of our love and care in it. We want to grow old there, you know, raise puppies and children and whatever life throws at us and um, just be there. And that's kind of our retirement plan. And so we end up investing in our home and building her parents an apartment downstairs. We got to put a pool in really just made this oasis. Her parents lived with us for about two years through 2020, which was a really rough year. I lost my best friend to this heinous murder. Her daughter murdered her. It's a whole thing. And like, it's was just the only person from my past. I still spoke to uh, that like just, I never even came out to her. You know, she's just somebody I've just kind of my last connection to my childhood other than my brother, of course. I'm and, so sorry. Um, what What is her name? Melissa, Missy, Missy Kelly. And um, just, I mean, she would have been 40 May 16th. So like, just come, it's just like, just taken too soon. She was just a beautiful human. It was insane. Like I went to the trial which ended up not going to trial because she took a plea deal. 
it was awful. That's when I started therapy actually is after we, I lost her. Cause all these people from my past, like called me out of nowhere. And so I'm like, wow, this is a lot all at once, both the murder of her. And then all these people I haven't talked to in 20 years that I have, you know, some trauma from, which is, you know, it's a whole thing. And then, um, you know, we lost our dog in 2020 right before that. It was just like, oh my God, this huge whirlwind finally. And living in our 1300 square foot home with her mom and dad. We're like at our wits and we finally get them downstairs. They were down there for nine months and Hurricane Ian took our whole house. It stood but crooked and the foundation wasn't salvageable. Anything under the house was not salvageable. There's a hole in the middle of the floor. So we were able to walk in there and salvage stuff, even though we weren't supposed to because it was considered an unsafe structure. We lost five vehicles between the four of us. We had a little golf cart too. So it was like beautiful beach life we were living Uh, right before that one of the best songwriters festivals i started golf cart karaoke and all these little shows and had a great you know hosting a pride event in southwest florida that was huge successful which we needed that positive stuff and and then bam and and i think that journey of the hurricane was wild i mean the moment of being in the hurricane was terrifying we actually went to my neighbor's house and hid uh, in her house because she had a three-story concrete. We had a 1935 two-story cottage, um, 18 foot of water for, I have a five foot watermark or six foot watermark in my second floor, which means it sat there at that height. And then it just surged. I, it, it, there, there's documentation of it. You Google it. It's insane to be there and, and to watch all of your hard work go into water and realize. And a lot of our friends didn't live. We were very lucky to live um, during the storm as the water was rising up to the second floor and we ran upstairs. There was a gas leak. So we had to open up doors temporarily until finally the front doors broke open to make sure we didn't die. It was just scary and it was long. And then when we came downstairs, we had to rummage through all of the debris. There was people in our house, squatting in our house, which, I mean, please, they they lived because they found our house. You know, um, they stayed in my house a little too long and took some of our things and stuff like that, which, you know, at that point, who cares, you know? Uh, But it's weird. It's weird to lose everything. It makes you, like I said, some of those things makes you go, there's definitely not a God. At the same time, after being through all the things I've been through and sometimes often feeling like, you know, growing up where I couldn't be myself and feel loved. In this moment, here we are, and I think I might die. And I'm texting Megs, who's one of my best friends, and she's sending me rescue tickets and trying to get the government to save my life. And I think I just realized that I mattered to some people. And that was a really big deal. They cared about Summer and I started to go fund me. I had absolutely nothing to my name. We couldn't salvage anything at first. We got had to get off the island. And so for a week, I didn't have underwear. I didn't have socks. I didn't have I literally had nothing, no cars, no shoes, no nothing. And friends of ours dropped off clothes. I mean, t-shirts, pants, shorts, like oh, the clothes I'm wearing now were given to me. Even now, all these, that was in September, all these months later, because like, I didn't have anything. And all of these people just loved Summer and I enough to help us. The government doesn't help you. I think we got like $2,000 from FEMA. They're like, oh, you have insurance. You don't get anything. And that's not how it works. Insurance does not hand you checks. So we're, we still don't have any help from insurance. So yeah, GoFundMe, I think, is proof that you even don't have to know a person to have to know their humanity, to see humanity step yeah. up. Yeah. I ran into at the Key West Songwriters Festival, I ran into Ashley Cook, a uh, country, country songwriter, singer songwriter. And I was like, I have met you for like a half a second. You, Otherwise, wouldn't I, we might not have recognized each other on the street. And she donated to our GoFundMe. And I just told her thank you because it's like it, there's a faith in humanity that is restored in me 
And I hope that like in the future, that's something we find a way to give back. You know, we're still sort of getting on our feet. We're like having to change our life's trajectory. And that is so interesting to go, oh, like I, I had to change everything. I have to rethink everything. Um, but I try to look at it as a positive. It's a rare, a rare opportunity to go, let's go start something different and start something new. And, but also the, I think the, the lesson all in all of this through my life is that life is short. Be happy. Was there any one thing, an actual item of thingness that you grabbed? Bef- in- um, well, I will say right at, right after the storm, we had no idea it was going to be so bad. It actually moved at the last minute and the power went off at 10. And so it was actually supposed to hit Tampa and then it came more towards us. And people who are like, you shouldn't inoculate, they don't know shit about hurricanes. And also that there's, there was five of us, actually, our best friend, two dogs and my in-laws who are older. So like, where are we going to evacuate to five people and two dogs? Also, like, literally, where are we going to go? You know, and then there's a whole thing with Fort Myers Beach. Most of the people that stayed, it's because back when Hurricane Charlie came a couple of few years ago. They kicked us off the island, which they did again. Uh, and they don't let you back on. And, you know, part of the reason half of the things I couldn't salvage is because mold sets in. So you have to be able to get back on and and rescue things. And we weren't able to do that because, you know. But right after the storm, we trudge through debris, knock on the door, find people in the house, blah, 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 blah. We don't feel like we can stay, so we're hurrying. And I grabbed my guitar. And to this day, it's like an expensive guitar. The first one I kind of really was like, I, I love this guitar. I'm going to play the hell out of it. I deserve to have an expensive guitar because I normally play like $500 guitars. And um, I happened to, my other guitar went underwater because it was on the floor of the second floor. But that guitar, I happened to set it up. And so I grabbed that one just that one. And I actually didn't even take it off the island. I went to the neighbor's house and hid it in her third story closet that had a lock on it because everything was being looted and we needed to get off the island and we couldn't carry anything. Um, but that that's kind of the only thing I can think of right now, but I'm sure there were other things. We ended up being able to go back. Some of our friends went with us, which were, we were just talking about, we're so grateful for, because like the moment we would walk, get on the island and it's dunk for weeks and weeks and you go into your house and your house stinks and everything's wet and there's water splashes all over everything and both of us would get in there and just go in five minutes we'd be done we'd be ready to go and just be like i don't i don't need it i don't know if i can wash it but i don't need it but our friends were there a bunch of our friends actually i think there was like five people and they just started putting shit in bags and just taking it and loading it up and then later on, we kind of went through and we were able to save like Yetis. We had all these Yeti coolers and Yeti cups that we've accumulated and that shit's expensive. I wouldn't, you know, and we take really good care of our stuff. So we were like, and so later on, once it was somewhere else, I cleaned it up and, you know, it still works. So there was probably a handful, probably like a storage units amount of things we were able to save from our house. Um, there is an extraordinary story of, people swimming to you. Can you tell that story? Yeah. Um, so during the storm, um, not, like I said, Summer grew up on the island. So she went to elementary school and our kind of like across the canal neighbor, across from the house we were staying in, like an L around from our home, um, is her best friend's dad. And so she's texting him like, and he's been on the island forever. And he has this little small cottage too. Um, a little lower to the ground than ours was. So he had just had ankle surgery and she texted him. She has a screen cap of the text and said, why don't you just come over to this house just in case I'll come get you with the car because of his ankle. And he says, I'm fine. LOL. I'll just swim. And that was that morning. And um, as the hurricane obviously got worse and worse and it started to climb, his house came off the pilings and started to flip into the canal and it was him and he has a tenant named Anthony as well. And, um, and he has a dog and he swam 
across. He, I, I can't even tell the story exactly because it's like he, we saw him recently, and like there's so much more to it. Like he got into a dinghy and then got the dinghy halfway across the canal and then swam the rest of the way. I don't even know. Like it's cra- like I don't even know how you get in a dinghy when it's like 200 mile an hour winds. Plus the surge is the surge is very strong. It's like really rising and rising fast. And he gets there and kind of just dunks, dunks the dog by the collar underneath the water and back through. Cause the first story of the house we're in is already underwater and, and then finds his way. I, I don't even know, finds his way upstairs through the water, through the water, through the, through the water and into the house, finds his way upstairs and he's okay. He's scratched all to death from the, from the dog. The dog's okay. Anthony did not make it right away. And so he held on to a piling and we could see him from there for about an hour and a half uh, or an hour. Some are so good with details and I'm not, I wish he was here, but he held on to that piling and then finally made his way over and he was purple and he had a big gash in his head. You could see his skull. I think some debris hit him in the head, but to be honest, that gash was the least of anyone's concerns he was going to die of hypothermia. I was holding the door closed with my body because the wind was so strong. If it came off, the roof was probably going to come off. So we were taking turns holding the door closed. Our best friend, Sarah, comes in and says, you have to trade me because some guy with a gash in his head comes in. She's like, I'm not dealing with that. (laughs) I don't know. You know, I'm not, I'm not the person. So we trade, I go outside. Summer has blankets and towels in her hand. And we just both know she covers his body. I cover his feet and I just start sitting on his feet to warm him up. Cause you know, I sit on his feet and she's keeping his head back. So he doesn't bleed into his eyeballs. We sat there for a little while. He kind of came to, we just kept checking on him, keeping his head back and he was fine. And he's, you know, typical, uh, kind of beach guy who's been there forever. So he, they called for rescue specifically for him, but he was already just down out and, you know, having a drink trying to find his way, found some people to staple his head and was fine. He's in this documentary. He like laughs the whole time. It's hysterical. Florida man. Florida man. He is a Florida man, beach Florida man, which is a, which is a kind of a different breed anyway, but we're really lucky to be alive. Um, How are you dealing with the PTSD from that experience? You've just had traumas upon traumas. (laughs) Um, I do have some storm, some storm trauma. I definitely like temporarily we live in a trailer uh right now uh when it rains really bad i do get scared in there i have a hard time sleeping but i think some therapy will be good hopefully once we settle in summer and i have both talked about you know finding some ptsd therapy i think it's more for me sometimes the storm scares me for her she's just like the trauma of like just like losing all our hard work again of just like watching kind of your blood sweat and tears wash away and that's difficult. That I think sometimes that's the hardest thing is this like turmoil. It was not easy. Like the the remodel of our home was tumultuous. I trusted a friend that I've known a long time with a hundred thousand dollars, which is a lot of money to us, like an astronomical amount of money. And he's like, I'm gonna get it done for you in three months. It took him like a year or more than a year. He didn't finish the job. My dad and I finished the job. He would not tell us where the money went, like, you know, a mistake we already knew, like, you know, you should have already known not to anyway, but you know, you just, sometimes you have to relearn stuff. And, and so it was like all this, like just grief for nothing. Bye. And in the end you just go, it's just stuff. We have each other. We're alive. Our family's alive. Um, You know? A lot of people did not make it. And um, during that storm, like I just, you know, we know where our friends live and we're going, I think that we had the highest amount of water on our street because we watched it. It like kind of bottlenosed on our street. And you can tell that by when you talk to our neighbors. And so thinking that it was that high everywhere, I was just like, okay, well, my friend Marina is definitely dead. Uh, Our friend Tracy was potentially dead. Uh, this person's definitely dead, you know, and just, you know, and that most of our close friends lived. Some of the people that we just kind of have known and some are especially known for years didn't make it. Some of them have worse stories, you know, and 
There's just no way anybody who says, you should have done this. There is no way to prepare for something like that. There isn't. Knowing what we know with the way the climate is and what's potentially coming, does that make you want to leave at all? Yes. <laughs> um, I think that was like a big, as we're searching for like places to live, people are like, are you going to rebuild? And I was like, I have no, I, I never want to go through that again. And so we love this little town called Gulfport. It's a little gay town. We've always talked about moving there. I'm, I can't live there. It's on a very similar, it, it, it's right on the water and I can't do it. And uh, even where we lived is a little bit close to water for us where we are deciding to move. But I had to kind of stop and say, I can't live my whole life based in fear. And I have to do what, you know, I have to move forward. If mother nature is going to do it, it's not going to matter where you live. If we don't do something to change, if, if our climate, if people don't start caring about the environment and there's no way you see that more than summer talks about it all the time, driving for UPS and growing up in this town, she'll be driving somewhere and she'll be like, this used to be trees. And now it is just building after building after building. And there's just, you can only do it so much somewhere down downtown and there's empty buildings and there's waste. And it's like, why aren't we revitalizing those places instead of tearing down our environment to make new places because right. you want the old shit. I don't know what the deal is, but we've yeah, got economics. It's just, it's all about money. And the truth of the matter, you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that, you know, the politicians who worry so much about who's sleeping with who or a dry clean reading a book or, or whatnot, it makes, as long as they can stir up that kind of fervor with their constituents, yeah, they will notice the fact that, you know, Florida doesn't have a great response time to disaster. The roads yeah. are screwed up. That the policies are screwed up. That yeah. the, the politicians are on the table dumping uh, pollution into Lake Okeechobee all the time. That people in America don't have America don't have clean water. Yeah, and so there's your answer. It's like uh, this is why <laughs> they're screaming about that things that why. literally mean have. There's just who cares? Yeah. You know, it's like let's. And then what do they do is they take books away so that yeah. you can't educate yourself so that you can speak out against the powers that be. And that's the, and that is the trouble is that uh, until us, and I've said this a few times, people are like, well, what do you do about it? And I'm like, I honestly, I don't know because if I tell people there's a problem, there's an attack on my community. A lot of people just don't believe it. I can give them all the proof and they don't believe it. Or it's, it's, it's either that, and then there's just like an even larger group of people who it's not that they don't believe it, they don't care enough to change how they vote. And until people start caring enough about other communities, about freedoms, about the environment to change how they vote, nothing will change. Yeah. And unfortunately, it is that um, apathetic voter. It is that apathetic person that you have to individually reach out to. Indi like, I don't know that there is any platform big enough to change the heart of a person, but I could maybe have dinner with someone to change the heart of a person, which just sounds exhausting, but I would definitely try. <laughs> I think that's a great plan. Dinner's with Sheena. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. I'd like to touch a little bit on your your time on The Voice. Once you sort of get past, um, there's like all these things to get up to the point where you're in LA about to do a blind. You're there for about like a month and you're really with the staff because there's a casting company that gets you to that point. So you have all these kind of casting calls. And then once you get uh, before a blind audition, you get to be a part of that and you're a part of The Voice. That team of people really wants to see you succeed. They really do. They want you to get a chair. They want you to do well. No one's going, I hope she did. She sucks. They are there to help you succeed. The I think anybody who's thinking of going on The Voice should do it because it's a great experience if you let it be a great experience. I met amazing people that I'm still friends with. I still write with. I still talk to because of that show. And I think it also... They like marketed me as like a rock and roll country girl. I realized well, that's not really who I am. Like as a, I like to write that as a songwriter, as an artist, not really me. I'm not, I can't really be in that box. And where it's like, I think, you know, 
let it teach you what it's going to teach you. And, um, but I think they do really want you to do well. They want you to succeed. They want you to sound good. So I, I found it to be an all around good experience. You know, I was on Team Adam. It was a very young cast. So like as an older person, there was definitely, um, like when I did my battle round with Hannah Iyer, who's a phenomenal singer and uh, adorable and 15 years old. And I'm like, she sings great. I sing great. I'm wailing in the rafters. I will say like, I'm proud of that performance because I sang it with little effort and it's impressive if you're a singer, but it doesn't matter what I can't beat a 15 year old, (laughs) you know, at like, 30, however old I was, 33, 35. I don't know. I don't even know how old I am now. None of us know how old we are. <laughs> the hurricane has aged me and I'm now just identifying as 62. Okay. <laughs> so when people are like, how old are you? I'm like 62. Just that's where I'm at. So yeah, I mean, it was a great, great experience. A lot of work. They do interview you like a lot. They have enough footage of me to do like a whole three, three seasons of a show. But it was great. They showed... I think I always love, um, you know, they show your life in your blind audition. And I remember in my episode, they didn't really even talk about me being gay. They just showed my family, which is me and my wife and my two golden retriever dogs and our white picket fence on the beach. It was adorable. And I liked the normalcy of that. I thought that they did a really good job with that. I mean, that's the thing, right? It is just normal. It's just people loving each other, living their life. It's exactly what it is. And and, uh, I thought NBC did a great job. So, Yeah. yeah. It was great. Now they're going to boycott NBC, all the bigots. I would be remiss if I didn't uh, ask somebody from Florida to give me a a personal Florida man story of yourself, either someone in your family being a quote unquote Florida man or you being a quote unquote Florida man. It's just so funny because like I'm trying to think of one and I know that in Key West, I probably told a thousand stories because me and Noah who's such a talented young guy. I, uh, we just instantly became best friends over he's Florida. Yeah. He's the best. Um, I actually want to have a show with you two, Florida. And <laughs> each other. I know. And I, I need him to like, I need to chat with him and get into my Florida zone. I think you told an alligator story. In I think I did. I mean, there's several, they've like attacked my dogs. I, I will say my, as a young person, I was riding around with my cousin, who's much older than I am. Um, so more like uncle age. And there was a gator. He went, he said, come on, we're going to come on. We're going to go find that gator because like, it's not safe. Like you got to go get it. And, and they lived out like in the boondocks and he's a cop. So he's like a good shot. But I remember it was in the ditch and he like stood on the end of the ditch and knew, like leaned over and pulled his gun out and shot him in the head and then goes, okay, go get him. And so I guess in my naivety, I just went, okay. And I ran down to the ditch, grabbed him by the tail and drug him out, not even thinking, I sure hope you have to hit a gator in the head to kill it. And it has a very small brain. So it's, you know, and um, I didn't even think twice about it. And we threw it in the bed of the truck and he taped its mouth. And I thought, why are you taping its mouth now? Like, you should have done that before you sent me after it. <laughs> and uh, I think there's probably more of those, but I, I, I've got to start writing them down before this Florida show. <laughs> So great. Sheena, tell people how they can find you out in the world. Out in the world. Um, I'm pretty easy to find. It's Sheena Brooke with two E's, two O's. And you can just go to SheenaBrook.com and all my social links are there. Um, but my Instagram is just Instagram at Sheena Brooke, uh, Facebook at Sheena Brooke Music. You can also find me on Spotify and Amazon Music and all that stuff. Do you want to talk about your your... Golf cart karaoke is a show that I did in Key West. I've done one in Island at the Island Harbor, and you can see all the episodes on my Instagram. So if you go find me at Instagram.com slash Sheena Brock, you can watch them. And I just kind of cruise around a golf cart with uh my Bose speaker and interview singer-songwriters. Most of them play guitar and sing. Jeffrey Steele just sang. And I think he got away with it because he has about eight bajillion hit songs. So many songs. <laughs> Sheena, thank you so much for being on the show. I love talking to you. So let's do it again. I just time. So thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 
rate, review, subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.